Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you promise that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit what you want us to know about God. Lord, today we ask that you would do just that. In our midst, be moving so that the deep things of God are revealed to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2006, the first TED Talk was published online. And this is a little snapshot of some of the most popular TED Talks since that time. Have you heard of TED Talks? So they're a short presentation by an expert. TED stands for Technology, Education and Design by an expert that is supposed to be very uh, engaging, groundbreaking, life-changing, but easy to watch. Do schools kill creativity? That's like the most popular one. (laughs) Your body language may shape who you are. Note, some findings presented in this talk (laughs) are basically in question. How Great Leaders Inspire Action. I need to watch that one. The Power of Vulnerability by Brené Brown. If you've been in the education space, the counselling space, uh, youth work, you've heard of this. Inside the Mind of a Master Procrastinator, which sounds like a perfect way to avoid doing some work. Watch that instead. How to speak so that people want to listen. I haven't watched all of these and I must. And finally, from 2015, the next outbreak, we're not ready, says Bill Gates. Oh boy. I'd like to say little did he know, but apparently he did know. We love to listen to not just experts, but those who can make what they have to say super engaging, entertaining, captivating. And we're not alone. In fact, since ancient Greek times, this has been considered one of the highest forms of human art, the persuasive speech Before the letter to the Corinthians was written, like hundreds of years before, in Athens, the birthplace of democracy meant that uh, power now lay not in violent rule, but in persuasion. Those who were to be your leaders were the ones who convinced you, persuaded you through their wise and eloquent words and you loved to listen to them. And in fact, so much so that this uh, Isthmian Games uh, was held in Corinth and it was like the Olympics, we talked about that last week, Uh, public speaking was a sport in the Olympics. I don't know if it was in the Isthmian Games as well, but perhaps. 
You would go and listen to speakers and they had various rules of uh, what it was to have a great talk and sort of ways of doing arguments and logic presentations uh, and rhetoric as it was called that you would enjoy and you would decide who won because of how persuasive and amazing it sounded. Politics was about persuasion, but persuasion was also about entertainment. I grew up watching these two men on Sunrise. Now, I don't know if you can recognise there, that's Kevin Rudd and Joe Hockey. This is around 2006, 2007. Did anyone used to experience, uh, so Kevin Rund was op opposition leader at that time. Joe Hockey, I think, was like workplace relations or something. And they would come on Sunrise Morning TV and they would talk in a, uh, a kind of light-hearted but persuasive and winsome way. And for me, I actually thought Australia's the best. This is just so great. Our leaders are so accessible, so down to earth, <laughs> so winsome. You know, this is how debate and politics should be done, so persuasive and so entertaining. Well, you can imagine my heart was broken when I discovered that that was all a front. And apparently, he wasn't all that nice of a guy behind the scenes, so much so that his party kept voting him out, voting him in, voting him out. But we still lived in that culture of really enjoying the person who could build a rapport with us and could persuade us that they were trustworthy and that they were the one to whom we should give our allegiance. Well, the church in Corinth, like me, loved impressive wisdom words. They loved speakers who would come in and be winsome, wise, persuasive, polished. The problem was that the Apostle Paul had not come to them in that way. In fact, since he had left, they had encountered many teachers who appeared much more polished, much more entertaining, and much more persuasive than Paul. In this section of the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, we really see in this first uh, three and a half, four chapters, that Paul is speaking into this issue. The people of Corinth had loved impressive wisdom words and so they had become uh, obsessed with that but also it had meant that factions had formed according to the particular speaker, I like Kevin Rudd, I like Joe Hockey, that they followed. And then underneath it all is actually a simmering rejection of the Apostle Paul. And you see throughout this section, up to the end of chapter 4, there's argument interspersed with first-person reflections from Paul. So he'll tell us about Jesus, and then we have a section where he says, I did this, 
and then he'll tell us more about the church or Jesus or God's plan, and then he'll come back and say, but I. So today, in the start of chapter 2, we're right in the middle of one of those. So Paul says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Someone came visiting once here at Deep Creek with their wife at a Christmas service, and she loved it. And his reflection was, Megan sounds like she could sell ice to Eskimos. That is the slickness of the presentation. It must have been a good day. The slickness of the presentation, because you're like, I don't know what day that was was such that he had ammunition to shoot down whatever content was in the message because it came across as too polished, too persuasive. We live in an age where we are quite suspicious in some ways. We've had our hearts broken over Kevin Rudd. We know that words actually can hide something. But uh, Paul ensured that his presentation of the gospel avoided the possibility of the ice to Eskimos barrier. He said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you. And this is a man who knew a lot, actually, who probably could have sat there like a rabbi and taught them quite eloquently. But he resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't have wise and persuasive words, the things that you love, but I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on something slick, some ice to Eskimos, on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, if you're anything like me, when you come across a contrast between words and power, there's a temptation to uh, misunderstand, I think, what Paul is talking about. When he says, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words, but I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, does he mean, I, I didn't come with a dry lecture, but I came with something very moving? Well, we know that's not the case because they loved things that were moving. Did he come uh, not preaching but instead doing miracles, works of power, signs and wonders? I think that's where my mind usually goes when I read this. I didn't come with wise and persuasive words. I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power as in, I did miracles amongst you. Or, in our post-Kevin Rudd, I won't go on about it, 
It's clearly formed me. It's a bit sad. We, we, is it a contrast between empty promises and action? I don't think it's actually any of those, surprise, surprise, rhetorical uh, device. Words versus power in that context is Paul saying, I didn't come to you with impressive words of wisdom. I came to you with the effective message of the cross that brought faith or wrought faith in those who are far from God. The demonstration of the Spirit's power here was the fact that you were converted. You put your faith in Jesus Christ because of this message. And it was a weak and trembling message of the foolishness of the cross. And you were converted. Now, I think it's likely that there was some signs, maybe some speaking in tongues, uh, maybe some prophesying. But the reason why I'm confident to say that this was not about preaching being bad and uh, works of power, signs and wonders being good is from chapter 1. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I think it's unlikely that he would have been saying, I came to you with signs, if he's just said, Jews demand signs, but I'm giving them the cross of Christ. But before you feel disappointed, I want you to know what that means. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are the greatest demonstration of the Spirit's power that there could be. You have no idea how far from God you were. You have no idea how dead in your sins you were. And for you to have faith in Jesus Christ is the most amazing, incredible, unimaginable work of the Holy Spirit. You are a walking, talking miracle if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you know that because you had a life that was lived far from God and yet Jesus put his finger on you and you believed. Some of you have grown up in a Christian family, have been in church all your life. You feel like Joe Average. Eh, it's just, you know, the plausibility structures that are around me and I'm just part of it because that's what you think. That's how your minds are always, you know. We're very academic here. You are a miracle. The Holy Spirit has been making you into a new creation, whether it was like that or whether it was over your whole life. You, and I am so blessed to be in the room with you, you are 
the demonstration of the Spirit's power because you put your trust in a God whose message seems utterly foolish. To trust in a God, to give yourself to the lordship of a God who would say that the plan of salvation was a Jewish man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago. That is a miracle. We were discussing this passage in staff meeting on uh, Wednesday and uh, Ben reminded us of the time when Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, was debating John Lennox, you know, we love to hear people speak, and uh, spoke about how the cross was foolish. And I managed to find that quote. And he says, there's a fundamental incompatibility between the sort of sophisticated scientist, and uh, sophisticated comes from the word that's throughout this passage, Sophia, for wisdom, which we hear part of the time from John Lennox, and it's impressive, and we are interested in the argument about multiverses and things. And then, having produced some sort of case for a kind of deistic God, perhaps some God, the great physicist who adjusted the laws and constants of the universe, that's all very grand and wonderful. Then suddenly we come down to the resurrection of Jesus. It's so petty. It's so trivial. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe. Isn't that incredible? He could imagine something vast and grand being worthy of a discussion of God. And yet, weakness and sacrifice by one man on one cross, so trivial, so local, so earthbound, so unworthy. It's exactly what Paul was saying 2,000 years earlier in chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The cross seems foolish, and yet it is the power of salvation. Does this mean, therefore, that uh, when we trust in Jesus, we have become, uh, perhaps like Dawkins would say, foolish, ignorant. We've checked our brains at the door. We have to uh, leave aside our academic minds and just have faith. Is the Christian message actually wise? 
Well, that's why Paul goes on to say, yes, actually, we do speak a message of wisdom. Don't get me wrong. This is not really foolish. We speak a message of wisdom among the mature, that is, those who can understand it by the Spirit, Christians, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus himself said, they know not what they do. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Before time began, before creation, before the light that is so ancient that we're only just getting a glimpse of it now in some of the telescopes, God had a plan. He wanted to create people to enjoy his presence and to reflect him to every part of creation. He wanted to create people who could choose to love him and would show his grace and goodness through their own gratitude to him and through their dignified ruling and reigning in the creation. Yet when he did, we rebelled. And century after century, that plan of God seemed to be uh, more and more impossible to fulfill as human beings seem to forget the plan of God or turn away from the call that their creator had upon them to enjoy his presence, to reflect him to the universe, to live out and speak of his grace and goodness. Until it got to a point where no one, no one could have worked out how God was going to put things right again. The Old Testament scriptures spoke of a time when things would be put right. They spoke of a king and a suffering servant grasping at ways to uh, put flesh on promises that God had made that things would come to pass to return creation to his original plan. But really it was still hidden. If it wasn't, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But now, Paul says, the fulfillment of that plan has been made clear to you. God himself had to take upon himself all the sin, all the brokenness, all the rebellion, all the forgetting of God. And he had to break the power of sin and death and despair. And so he did that on the cross through his own son, his own self, dying and then rising again. 
to bring the new creation smack bang in the middle of the old, to be the first fruits of what was to come. No one could have imagined, and yet we now have this mystery completely unrolled before us. so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So we must know that this ancient and incredible and deep plan can only be revealed to us by the Spirit. So we must receive the Spirit because God's wisdom is so deep No one could have fathomed. It was a complete mystery. And yet now for us, you and I, it seems like, oh, that makes perfect sense. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit, Paul says, searches all things, even the deep things of God. Goes back to the time before time began and gets, if you like, the treasures from the bottom of the depths of God's wisdom and brings them up for us to see. The upside-down nature of the kingdom, God's love, his grace, what it means to be holy, all of these things brings them up to us and keeps bringing them and bringing them and bringing them But it only works because of this principle that the Greeks used to uh, call like knows like. It's not possible for you to know what's in my mind. I mean, there's probably a list of some things that you could make some pretty educated guesses um, uh, and, you know, you'd, you'd be 80% right likely to guess. But the other day, uh, I said to Phil, "Um, can you guess what I'm looking forward to doing when I come home? Now, you're watching TV, uh, getting a drink, whatever it is, uh, and only Phil, the closest person, could say, playing with your Rubik's Cube. Bingo. (laughs) I told I did not need to watch that procrastination video because, yep, taught myself how to solve a Rubik's Cube. (laughs) I should have been doing work. (laughs) Phil knew that. But I don't think any of you would have known that. Thank goodness. But now you do and you just don't respect me. It's all right. But even Phil at times, will have no idea what's going on in my head. Only I know. Only God could know what goes on in the depths of God's mind, heart. And we have no chance of knowing unless somehow we're in there or unless somehow part of that gets put in us. And guess what it does? 
Who knows a person's thoughts about Rubik's Cubes except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. God himself has allowed part of his mind to be in us, part of his heart, who he is, his very self, so that like can finally know like, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. His ways are so far from our ways that even the most spiritual, the most compassionate, the most intelligent amongst us will always get it wrong without part of God himself, without God himself living in us. I follow a couple of people who speak about neurobiology on Instagram and um, like forget 20-minute TED Talks, right? Like (laughs) a two-minute reel, that's about it. Um, (laughs) What a world. But as much wisdom as there is in that, and I appreciate it, if you follow it to its logical conclusions or if you decide that this is what I will base my life on, even though it's great, without the Holy Spirit, our ways are not God's ways. We will never get there. And so Paul says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. When God brought the message of the cross to you, he didn't just bring content. He brought with it power, grace and grace. He gives you the salvation in Jesus Christ and he gives you his very self to understand it. And without it, We could not understand it without him, the spirit, I should say. After COVID, many of us have uh, reassessed what going to church is for us. And we ask the question uh, or we make the claim, I want a spiritual church. I mentioned in my email that it's been three years since I've been uh, leading here at Deep Creek. And that was my heart too, and I knew it was yours when I came. We must be a spiritual church. And in verse 14 in chapter 2, that's what Paul is saying, and he uses this word pneuma, spirit, these three times, and it's quite... um, It would have sounded quite amazing in the Greek. To us, it sounds a little bit um, complicated. But he says, words taught by the spirit, pneumatos, explaining spiritual realities, pneumatikos, is spirit-taught words or to spiritual people, pneumatika. 
So uh, he's saying it's by the Spirit, uh, with Spirit words, uh, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. It's all the Spirit. Pneumatos, pneumatikos, pneumatika. It's all spirit. Each part of it, any single part of church life that is actually growing, it is all the spirit. And a spiritual church is one that says the cross and the resurrection has been made possible for me to understand by the Holy Spirit and any wisdom we have comes from Him and I depend on Him for every single part of my life. We never say, over there is the spiritual work, that stuff there. Every single part of how we know God, how we grow together, what we experience from the Scriptures, how we pray, every single part has to be empowered by the Spirit. Otherwise, it cannot come anywhere near understanding the heart of God. Finally, he concludes with these words. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of of Christ. Now this first section is a quote from Isaiah 40, which if you went back and read in your NIV, you'd find it says this, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? But the word for the spirit of the Lord uh, was just as easily translated mind. And so here is the transition and link that Paul is saying, uh, who's known God? You've been given the spirit. Who can understand the spirit of the Lord or the mind of the Lord? Well, you can because you've been given the spirit of the Lord, which is also the mind of the Lord, the mind of Christ. You now can think in terms of spiritual realities to spiritual people taught by spirit words all the time because you have been given the mind of Christ. Now, if your background's not an Anglican, this will be extremely strange and Google described it as someone with a tattoo. Um, Or you know when they have that little explanatory sort of accessibility language. Um, This is someone who's received the sign of the cross in Ashes on Ash Wednesday in a traditional either Anglican or um, Roman Catholic service at the start of Lent leading up to Easter. And we mark ourselves with the sign of the cross to speak of repentance. But really we live with this every single day of our Christian life. We have the mind of Christ. So that when we come to church, we don't see each other as the world sees. We don't rank each other in terms of wisdom or uh, uh, education, how great we would be on a TED Talk, how beautiful we are, how wealthy we are. We have the mind of Christ. When we come to church and we have conflict and division and we think, oh, I don't really like that thing that she said 
or whatever it was or someone said something rude to me over coffee, instead of saying this is going to be make or break, we have the mind of Christ. We seek love, we seek reconciliation, we seek to put things right. We do the hard thing. When we go home and we're interacting with our kids or we're by ourselves, or we're planning the calendar or we're thinking about the next week of work, we have the mind of Christ. We see the world as God intended it to be seen and we know the answer, we know the plan. We now can live with the dignity and royalty and gratitude and sacrificial love of the one who made us. The Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we know the deep things of God, so that we now are like him in being able to know his mind, so that our ways can become his ways and that all that we do is seen through the mind of Christ. Amen.